Hello and welcome to West Indies on 99.94 Cricket Every Day. My name is Matthew St. Patrick Hewitt, one half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And with me is every Santoki Nagilendron, the other half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. West Indies on 99.94 is your new home for West Indies cricket content. And we'll be dropping into your podcast feed on YouTube or on the 99.94 app. And we'll do that several times every week. So please rate, review and subscribe. And thanks for joining Cricket's Conversation. Today on West Indies on 99.94, we're going to be looking back at Super 50 and Santoki, the victorious Jamaica Scorpions. Santoki, take it away. Yeah, I I tried to get out of doing this episode, but eventually I've been forced to discuss the regional 50-over tournament that occurred, finished last week, um, and we saw Jamaica prevail. Now, Michelle, oh, well, firstly, if you want to hear us dissect the group stages, go back and listen to episode 33. Today, we're going to focus on the semifinals and final. Now, Michelle, if someone had said to you six months ago, Jamaica would do a clean sweep in whiteboard domestic competitions, the Talawas prevailed in CPL, and now the Scorpions have prevailed in the Super 50. Similar similar ways of doing it as well, lackluster group stages, and then came up good in the knockout rounds. Just sort of sum up, how... What does this, how do you, firstly, how do you feel about this? Jamaica clean sweeping the double, um, both white ball tournaments. And also, what does it mean for Jamaica domestic cricket at the moment? Very good question. And the, the first thing I'll say to start off with is this past week, I've seen more Jamaican cricketers and personnel on Jamaican domestic TV than I have in a long while. Uh, so for those for those who are listening to this who are familiar with like the key stations related to sport in Jamaica, I've seen uh, Andre McCarthy, I believe, was on TVJ, may well have been CVM. Um, there was also Chadwick Walton was on Sportsmax. Um, Andrew Richardson, the head coach, was along with Andre McCarthy as well. And the reason why I make that point, Santoki, is it's about visibility. Right. So even though I think there are significant structural weaknesses in the domestic game in Jamaica, the only way you can get increased corporate interest, the only way you can get more eyes on the product is to have a is to have a winning franchise. And the the reality is the, the record books will say that in 2022, the Talawas won CPL. And I know some people say CPL is a bit different, but the nature of CPL means that each team will always have a majority of their own island people on the team. So Talawas won CPL and Scorpions, Jamaica Scorpions won, won Super 50. So it's a successful domestic year um, for for Jamaica franchises, so to speak. So let's, I think, I'm not going to look in the short term, but let's just see if that has any long-term impact on the game in Jamaica and if that has any long-term impact in terms of, improvement of West Indies cricket. And the reason why I kind of throw that caveat in at the end, Santoki, is let's use Guyana. We always try and go Jamaica-Guyana, but let's use Guyana. Guyana won the four-day championship five seasons in a row. Now, could we reasonably say and look back and say, well, that had a lasting impact on anything? So, and that's not to criticise Guyana. That's not my point. I think the point I'm trying to make there is there is a disconnect sometimes in our cricket where you can succeed at the domestic level, but that doesn't necessarily translate to anything 
be beyond that, even, even in so much as selection for the West Indies. Does that suddenly mean that a lot of this Jamaica Scorpion side are going to get into the West Indies ODI side? Probably not, not really. So there's a wider issue about what's the, what's the larger knock-on effect of this, or is it just that we can only look at what happens in Jamaica? Yeah, I think, I think that's a very, very valid point. Is this going to be an isolated period of success for Jamaica or is it going to have repercussions in terms of benefiting West Indies cricket? And I think you make an excellent point about the Guyana Jaguars, as they were known then, won five Red Bull um, seasons in a row. Probably the reason why they did win it, because the very good players they did have weren't getting called for West Indies or having sustained um, spots in the West Indies squad. So they were available to play the regional domestic tournament. But when the likes of Leon Johnson, Chandrika, Vishal Singh did get West Indies opportunities, unfortunately, they weren't successful. So there was a disconnect in terms of that. So hopefully we see more of a connection between um, the Jamaica White Ball squad players making it into West Indies and bringing some sort of success there. But Mash, before we look at the, the sort of final where Jamaica prevailed, it's only right we take a look at the semi-finals. For one of them was uh, particularly was a classic Trinidad and Tobago versus Barbados played in the semi-final. Now, Nicholas Poran had scored 111 of 82 balls to take Trinidad and Tobago to 312 for six at the end of their innings. We had gone on a Twitter live space with West Indies cricket saying there was no way, there was no way Barbados pride were going to chase this. And it didn't look like they were when they lost both of, both of their openers very early. Shy Hope went for 24, but then Mash. Roshan Primus. Now, I'm no expert in the hist- complete history of Super 50. It's been going on for years and years. But I would be willing to bet that Roshan Primus's innings of, let me just get the stats up, 130 of 80 balls batting at the lower end with the tail end, taking Barbados to within 10 runs of victory is probably one of the all-time great Super 50 innings. Most definitely. And do you know who I've got to give credit to? Um, Nikhil Chandani, a good friend of ours uh, on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast as well. Well, he's world famous. Now, <laughs> that's uh, Nikhil. Nikhil had actually said, he came on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast to do a Barbados Pride uh, preview of the squad. And he said, he actually said, uh, and I'm uh, paraphrasing him here, but he actually said, Russian Primus has the ability to take apart any attack in cricket. And it took until the semi-final. I mean, we saw Russian do bits and pieces in CPL, in fairness, for um, the St. Lucia friends, uh, franchise. But it took until the semi-final for Russian to show exactly what Nikhil meant. And like you say, Santoki, it was it was an outrageous knock because at the time he pulled it off, I think at one point the pride was something like 120 for five. Where, where, but this is before Primus got into, like, um, Superman gear. Um, so... Yeah, most definitely. It, it, it was an amazing knock and brought Barbados to the brink. And we, we must give some credit, actually, because the going into the final over, I think Shannon Gabriel was the person who defended the final over and he basically nailed full stump Yorkers time after time after time. And that's the only thing that actually got, that made sure that Russian Primus couldn't take them um, over the line. But here's the thing, Santoki. That knock was amazing. Um and such is the nature of West Indies cricket that when somebody produces a knock like that, immediately you only have to have one knock in West Indies cricket to start getting to start getting questions about your possible international your possible international call up. I've already seen some messages sent to me saying how close is Russian Primus to an international call up. Now my thing is okay, it was a fantastic special knock. Is that enough to warrant him being in any conversations? Me personally, I would say. No, but again, Santoki, this is the problem in West Indies cricket. How is Russia now supposed to build on that? 
We haven't got any competitions until the four day champ. And then there's on, which is going to be what, maybe April next year. And there's no guarantee that he even gets into the Barbados franchise or any franchise for that matter for the four day championship. So again, Santoki, every time we kind of discuss these domestic things about West Indies cricket, I feel like we always return to the fact that there's just not enough cricket being played. How, unless he gets a T20 franchise deal somewhere or maybe goes to play in America, how's he going to build on this? Yeah, exactly. Because the 130 was his last innings in the Super 50 as Barbados did lose, um, to Trinidad and Tobago. So essentially, he's not going to play 50 over domestic cricket for at least another year, potentially a year and a half. So what what else does he have to, what other tournaments or competitions can he go to to sort of prove his 50 over credentials? The answer is none. Um, so he's essentially going to have to sit and wait around. He's not going to get called up for West Indies based on one performance. He'll have to wait for next Super 50 to have more consistent performances and then maybe hope for, for a call-up. So essentially, you're wasting time. And this also linking it back to... Um, Red Bull cricket, I've seen a few interviews um, in the global media, because obviously Tejan Ryan Chanderpaul's in the spotlight, about why he's making it now at 26 and not younger. And his dad, Shivna Ryan, said because he went two years without playing any cricket, so he's had to wait his time. And this is what our region's cricketers have to do. If you're young and want to make it into the West Indies setup, you essentially have to play the sparse tournaments we have, which occur every one to two years, and then hope that you can get consistency within that short frame of time. So it is very challenging, and it will be... Unfortunately, I don't think Primus um, will make the West Indies side anytime soon just because in a year, a lot of things change. The, um, and also it's hard, again, like I said, to go without playing professional cricket for a year in terms of 50 over and then having to perform within a three-week period is very, very tough. So it is unfortunate that the system isn't set up at the moment to aid West Indian cricketers who are trying to make a name for themselves. But Mesh, let's move on to the reluctantly... Well, let's take a break. Actually, we're going to take a break because I'm going to need I'm going to need a drink or two to process this. Because after the break, we're going to look at the other semi final between Jamaica and Guyana. Hi, I'm Nikesh Shrigani, commentator and host of the India on ninety nine point nine four podcast. Several times each week, my co host Sarah Waris and I will be bringing you the very best in Indian cricket chat. Whether we're discussing the legend of Julan Goswami. Kale Rahul's strike rate, the men's T20 death bowling woes, or the latest controversy involving the BCCI, we've got you covered. You can listen and subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Just search for India on 99.94. You can watch us via YouTube and you can download the 99.94 app. If you love Indian cricket, then join our conversation. Okay, Mash, now we're back now. Jamaica versus Guyana was the big Caribbean cricket podcast derby Guyana's innings on paper if you looked at it 318 for nine very very good score considering the super 50 before the semi-finals had been a very very low score in tournament but if you actually watched the match you would argue it'd be disappointed for Guyana because Nicholson Gordon and Odeon Smith at the death restricted them very much from scoring 330 340 plus which you feel would have taken the game away from uh, Guyana just sort of I know he performed in the final as well, but just sort of how important has Nicholson Gordon been for the Jamaica during um, Jamaica Scorpions during this campaign? Yeah, we 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 use the phrase "golden arm" to describe Carl Mayer's contributions um, for West Indies, and I just feel that on the uh, on the domestic scene, that's what Nicholson Gordon is for. Whether it was the Talawas this year or for the Scorpions and in previous seasons as well. At the end of the day, because I, I was on a forum uh, recently and someone had posted that they 
they said they posted something like, like Nicholson Gordon seems to take a lot of deliveries, sorry, a lot of wickets with bad balls. And there's two ways of looking at that. Yes, you could look at it and go, he's a lucky bowler. Or you can just look at it and say, he just makes things happen. At the end of the day, wickets is your currency, right? Um, he was excellent for the Talawas in CPL when I thought he would be too expensive to play in T20 cricket. And then he's come straight from the CPL into Super 50 and he's made things happen. And he, I mean, Shannon Gabriel and Aldine Smith were joint top wicket takers alongside Nicholson Gordon. But yeah. with respect to Shannon Gabriel and Aldine Smith, we can understand that because they're international cricketers. They've been on the international scene. Nicholson Gordon hasn't. And we have to respect what he's managed to achieve. And again, it sounds similar to the Russian Primus argument, Santoki, but now what? <laughs> now what for Nicholson Gordon? Uh, again, yes, he'll play some domestic cricket in Jamaica in the new year. Um, but I would say domestic cricket, I mean, for his club sides in Jamaica. But again, unless maybe a T20 franchise picks him up in one of the smaller tournaments, again, there's no professional cricket for him until the four-day championship um four-day championship start. So again, I feel like we're having the same kind of conversation. What a great year for Nicholson Gordon, but there's too much of a gap now for for him to come under kind of, I guess, greater selection scrutiny. Yeah, definitely. It's just the, the same issues. And um, just looking at the Guyana score, when they had scored 318, I thought that would be enough. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be. And it was very different innings. Whereas Barbados in their chase, they relied on Russian primers to play explosive cricket. Jamaica essentially played sensible cricket. Nobody really went on massive, massive strike rates. Rothman Powell went just over 100. Brandon King built a solid foundation. But I guess it's obviously highlighted by Rothman's 105 of 92 to steer the side. Michelle, was that a real captain's innings? Do you think leadership is something which Rothman Powell has taken in his stride and it's benefited his own game? <laughs> I can't believe it's the Jamaican guy trying to look at the the potential flaws in the Rothman Powell. <laughs> <laughs> but um, listen, Powell seems to thrive with captaincy. Um, and it, and and the thing is, it's more than this year because we we must remember that uh, last year the the Talawak, Talawas, the the Scorpions got to the semi-finals of Super Fifty last year as well. And I would have argued then that their squad wasn't that strong a squad last year either. I think they lost to Trinidad in the semi-finals last year. So Powell Powell is certainly because he's not he's not bombastic. You don't look at Powell and go right. You know, like with Pollard, it was like you can see the clear strength of personality. Like he is the leader. It's so obvious in his body language. Powell's not like that. Powell's body language is a bit more understated. But at the same time, it's clear that everybody is listening to his message. Um, and what's quite significant about what he's achieved with Jamaica and maybe why so many people say he's the natural person now to replace Nicholas Puram is with respect to the Jamaica franchises, he has made he he has led teams that have been better than the sum of their parts right the the Talawas franchise you and I did the did the the CPL preview show and I said it you said it that team looks weak and yet they won they won CPL the Scorpion side no one had them down to even be in the final of uh Super 50 much less win it because the side didn't look that good particularly when we knew that Bonner and Blackwood were going to leave to go to Australia so you have to, again, you have to look at the facts. He seems to be a good leader of men and he seems to be able to galvanise teams to perform better than what they look like on paper. So the natural conversation, Santoki, which I put to you is people naturally say, well, 
Rodman Powell should take the West Indies captaincy in both T20 and ODI. Where are you standing on that, Santoki? I think I think T20 definitely, but I think the way cricket is going, um, the trends. I would like to probably see a different captain in the ODI format, just because I think Rothman hasn't cemented his place in in the West Indies ODI side, so it'd be a tough challenge for him. <coughs> sorry, to come in and lead lead a team, and also as we've said on on our West Indies with the future of West Indies cricket, culturally it's very different. Obviously, Jamaica, it's mm. easy to galvanise a team where you're all sharing the same culture. West Indies, where it's a melting pot of different cultures different personalities it's going to be a bigger task and I think taking that over in two formats is going to be very very tough for him so I would definitely like to see him take over the T20 captaincy I think he's sort of warranted that ODIs um I would ideally like to see a shy hope if possible or someone with a bit more experience in ODIs take over the mantle because I feel as I feel Rodman Powell would would put his all into it but I don't know I feel like he'd be set up to fail managing the ODI side just because he hasn't had that much recent experience in the format and hasn't cemented his place in the eleven. But it'd be interesting to see what way they go if they just sort of do what they did with Pollard and Poran and um, um, amalgamate both um, white ball formats under one captain. So that'd be very, very interesting. Now, Mash, it's only right we talk about the guy in the Harpy Eagles. <sighs> <laughs> I was going to pepper you with some questions, so good. <laughs> different, different name this season, same old story for the guy in the Harpy Eagles. You know, they looked promising in the group stages, crumbled when it mattered in the semi-finals. For me, I think this should be the end of an era. I don't think Leon Johnson should be captain in the side going forward. He's 35 years old. He'll be 36 by the time the next Super 50 is there. He's always been seen as an excellent Red Bull captain and a Red Bull specialist. I think the white ball format has essentially passed him on now. And I would like to see a Hetmeyer take over that captaincy, a fresh face, get him that captaincy experience. Now, in the side, we obviously saw the likes of Hetmeyer, and Rutherford in the semi-finals performed quite well, showed their international credibility, um, and Romario Shepard. But I just thought generally the side was lacking. Bramble and Savary, obviously, they were unlucky that Chandrapur Hemraj was injured on the eve of the tournament. Tejnar and Chandrapur got test call up, so they essentially had a makeshift opening pair. But again, Mash, I've always said with the guy on the white ball side, the main issue we seem to have is we haven't got an out-and-out pace bowler who's, who can take wickets. We relied on Nar Smith. He done well in 2021. He's still a very, very inexperienced player. He hasn't got that much professional cricket experience. So that kind of showed in this tournament, he was very inconsistent. And we relied on Romario Shepard to sort of take the wickets with his all-round capability. So it's always the same issues with Guyana. I just feel the lack of an out-and-out pace bowler. Someone like a Shannon Gabriel would be perfect for the siders letting them down. And just, I think a lot of the players, similar to what we'll get onto with Trinidad and Tobago, I think a lot of players, this tournament was one tournament too much for them. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I'm not going to lie. When Guyana posted the 318, I assumed they'd win. Um, I, I'll admit, though, that when Jamaica got off to the fast start, I thought, well, hold on. All they have to... The, the start was so good that all they had to do then was just maintain a, the steady run rate. They, they were never put in a position where it was like, uh-oh, we're behind the ball. We're behind the eight ball here. We can't win this. Now, it's, it's so cliched to say it, but we do have to look at it. Is there just something where in knockout cricket for Guyana, where a game is in the balance and something just switches? Because Jamaica in the end can at home. They won with 11 balls to spare. You shouldn't be chasing 3-1-9 to win and win with 11 balls to spare. That doesn't make any sense. And, and that's why I think you're right to say you have to first and foremost look at the bowling. And I do think you're right to say Guyana lack what I, I'm going to call it an enforcer. 
an enforcer bowler who you can just basically give the ball to and say, right, go crank it up to 90-odd and just make it a bit uncomfortable. Make it a bit uncomfortable for the for the opposition. And Jamaica weren't made to be... They weren't made uncomfortable enough. And actually, what I would say as well, Santoki, is really and truly, when you look at the Guyanese uh, bowling attack across the tournament, really and truly, only Gudakesh Moti and Romario Shepard showed up. And I just wonder if he's not that fast bowler we're talking about, but I wonder how much they missed a fit firing Kimo Paul, just as an alternative to, in, the, in terms of the bowling cadre to say, we know that Kimo Paul can take wickets at crucial moments. They didn't have anyone else beyond um, Shepard and Moti who they could really turn to. And I think that stuff matters in knockout cricket. Yeah, definitely. I think Kimo Paul was a massive, massive blow. Again, someone with international experience and just someone who could sort of change games with his bowling. And um, I think it sort of shows there was no sort of stand-up player. I don't think any Guyanese players made the tournament of the team. Romario Shepard was picked as a 12th man reserve, but no one made the actual 11. Tevin Imlach was the highest scorer. But again, I think he scored one innings of 63, not out. But other than that, there was no sort of standout innings from there. He was sort of just put together consistently scores over 40, 50, but there was no sort of landmark innings for him. And again, with the bowling, it was sort of distributed. Romario Shepard had to take the bulk of it. Moti, Pamor, um took a few as well. But again, it just, there was no sort of standout players who sort of led, by example. Um, Hetmeyer in the semifinals did put his all in to trying to get a big score together, but unfortunately it wasn't enough. So I think there'll be massive, massive changes at the guy in the Harpy Eagles, both in white ball and red ball, just because I think, as I said, a lot of players have passed that threshold of mid-30s, so you'd imagine they'd be looking to sort of reinvigorate the side. But, Mash, we're going to take a short break, and when we're back, it's the moment you've been waiting for. We're going to be dissecting the final and Jamaica's victory over Trinidad and Tobago. So we'll be back on the other side. I'm Neil Manthorpe, one half of South Africa on 99.94 with Lungani Zama. We're covering the Rainbow Nation as it undergoes its biggest transition since readmission. We cover every part of the South African game on 99.94 and you can hear us several times a week where you find your podcasts or on YouTube. Okay, now, so we come to the final. Trinidad and Tobago put in 217 all out. Now, for me, Michelle, that was an excellent, excellent bowling performance on Jamaica. Sort of everyone put their hand up and did the job. Um, it was led by Nicholson Gordon again taking three wickets, but then Javor Royal took two wickets. Odeon Smith chipped in with two wickets. Dennis Bulai, he only took one wicket. We'd seen him be prolific in the group stages, but he only conceded 44 runs, so he kept the economy down. Very, very crucial. Just how impressed were you by that dis- um, disciplined bowling performance in the final when it mattered? Yeah, most definitely. And Ultimately, it's the bowlers that won Jamaica the tournament. Uh, and rightly so, because the Jamaican ba- the Jamaica batting lineup without Bonner and Blackwood was never going to be strong enough to consistently win matches with the bat. The bowlers had to put them in a position where the weakened, quote-unquote weakened batting lineup could could chase lower totals. And against Trinidad and Tobago, again, with full respect to the Jamaica Scorpion side, the, their best chance of winning was restricting Trinidad and then hoping they could chase it down. And fundamentally, Santoki, I think the proof is in the pudding, right? When you look at the top wicket takers in the tournament, I'm just going to read this to you. Nicholson Gordon and Aldine Smith were tied first. Um, Bulai was third, fourth. No, sorry, third. Javar Royal was fifth. Now, some people say, yeah, of course, Mash, Jamaica played eight games. But the thing is, the, the larger point I'm making, Santoki, is they had wicket takers all over their team. So they knew, Jamaica knew throughout this tournament, they could all, and let, let, 
think about the point I just made about Guyana before the break. Guyana had Moulton Shepherd and then didn't really know else where their wickets were going to come from. Whereas with Jamaica, Rothman Powell knew I can turn to Nicholson Gordon, I can turn to Old Dean Smith, I can turn to Javar Royal, I can turn to Dennis Bullock, I can turn to myself, I can turn to Jamie Merchant. He knew there was pure wicket takers in his side. And that's ultimately what undid Trinidad uh, because everybody, like you said, put their hand up. So I think the final ultimately was Jamaica's tournament in a microcosm. Bowlers setting up the match and then the batters being able to chase down um, a manageable target. Yeah, and for, for Trinidad and Tobago, Yannick Carey, obviously um, an all-rounder known, known for his spinner, was the highest scorer with 43. Nicholas Poran, now we've seen Nicholas Poran in the T20 um, cricket in Abu Dhabi this week hit 70-odd off 22 balls or something. He only hit eight of 22 balls, which shows you how tricky it was to sort of navigate the spin bowling of Bulai, and then he was eventually caught by um, uh, Chadwick Walton off Odeon Smith's bowling. So it was a very, very inconsistent uh, batting performance on Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, considering they'd posted over 100 more um, during the semi-final. Now, Mash, Jason Mohammed in the side had an abysmal, abysmal tournament. I'm not sure what his average was, but mostly single-figure scores throughout the tournament. Darren Bravo, he had some big scores, but also very inconsistent. Do you think this is the last we'll see of these sort of senior batsmen in that Trinidad and Tobago side? I'm really, I'm really unsure what happens next. Um, and many players, I think every team's got this dilemma, by the way. So let me just pick four at, at random. You said Leon Johnson for Guyana, right? For Jamaica, Chadwick Walton played and he's 37. Trinidad had Jason Mohammed playing, right? Uh, uh, Barbados had Jonathan Carter playing. Now, my point is this, at what stage do you, again, it's, it's the age-old argument, Santoki, at what stage do you have to prioritise the next generation for the wider benefit of West Indies cricket? Because really and truly, should we really be having players who are 35 and older still dominating regional sides? Now, if they're performing at their club level, then the argument is yes. But I just always look at it and think, so look at Trinidad. Let's look at uh, using Trinidad and Toki. How many games did Jai Gooley actually play in the tournament? Like two? But come on, this guy was in this guy was in under 19 winning teams, and he's still having his pathway, quote unquote, blocked. Right? It doesn't at some point you have to think bigger. You have to think wider and bigger. So actually, to give Guyana their due, someone like Christopher Barnwell isn't picked anymore in uh, in white ball cricket, arguably he probably should be, but he's not. Because at some point you have to move these players on and think about the the, the wider aspects of West Indies cricket. Your interview with Tevin Imlak, <clears throat> perfect case in point. It feels like this has been Tevin Imlak's breakout season, and look how old and look how long it's, it's taken for him to get to that stage. So I do think a lot of teams have to think about what's more important. And I know what you're going to say, Santoki. What's more important, winning Super 50 and four-day championship or actually developing younger players? What's actually more important? Well, I think if, if Shiv Chandapur was still willing to play, Guyana would probably throw him in his open eye in, in, <laughs> in a desperate quest to try and win the title for themselves. So, yeah, I do agree. I think there needs to be some sort of more a wider way of thinking about how is this benefit not only West Indies cricket, but also your team for the next few years. Obviously, if you're picking 
Jason Mohammed um, regularly for your Super 50 tournament, he's not going to be here in four or five years. Who are you going to get in? Who are you developing to sort of take over his role in the middle order? So I do think there needs to be that thinking. Unfortunately, as we've discussed on so many episodes, the nature of West Indies cricket means probably it will never change. Islands will want to have their best players on the field to sort of win them the tournament. Case in point, being the Sunil Narayan. We know what Sunil Narayan can do. World-class spinner. He's never going to play for West Indies again, most likely. So there's immediately a disconnect of, if he was leading wicket-taker in the Super 50, what does that mean for West Indies cricket? Nothing, because he wouldn't play for that. So we again have that disconnect between our regional tournament, which is meant to be a feeder for the West Indies format, uh, 50-over format, having a massive, massive disconnect. Now, Michelle, in the chase, obviously a relatively slow, a relatively low chase, but Chadwick Walton essentially carried the side 80 of 94 balls, supported by Andre McCarthy. But I think the big, big narrative was Shannon Gabriel. We talked about how remarkable it was he'd stayed fit throughout the tournament. Unfortunately, when it mattered in the final, he got injured, only managed to bowl four overs, even then got one wicket. Do you feel that the game basically turned on its head once Gabriel walked off the field? Yeah, in hindsight, that possibly actually was the key moment because it, it hamstrung what Purang could do. And there was a clear moment in the game where Walton and McCarthy were putting together, I think they they sat, yeah, it was a century stand. And there was a clear moment where nothing was working for for, for T, uh, TNT. And that's the point at which, if Gabriel was fit, Puran would have turned to him and said, you know what? Give me three overs on the bounce and crank it. Crank it up. You may go for licks, but at least you're offering something. Gabriel was the only bowler, old Dean Smith, Gabriel was the only bowler on that pitch who had the ability for Trinidad, certainly, to do something that no one else could do. And he was off the pitch. And and it's it's unfortunate, Santoki, because that then starts the narrative again of people saying, well, you see, he can't stay fit. I mean, that will be, that will certainly for me, show and probably prove that any chances of test cricket again, that it may, it may be done, you know, Santoki, just because people continue to have fitness concerns. I still think we should greatly consider him in terms of ODI cricket because of the, the strength of the tournament he had. But again, there's worries about his ability to last over, over long periods of time. Yeah, definitely. There'll be question marks about his fitness. I mean, to be fair, he did play, um, what, six, seven... Um, 50 over games in a, such a short space of time, which you wouldn't have to do in international cricket. So as you said, I do think he still would warrant consideration for perhaps the West Indies ODI side as that enforcer. And again, Trinidad and Tobago, similar to Guyana, once Gabriel was out, they essentially had Terence Hins as their bowler, premier fast bowler. There wasn't that much quality. They had to rely on the spin of Akira Hussain, Sunil Narayan, Yannick Carey. Spare a thought for Imran Khan, the veteran. This might be his last Super 50 dropped. In the final for Kari Pierre, who was making his debut in this tournament. <laughs> First game, they put him in the final. They said, Imran Khan, listen, you're, you're out. <laughs> we got we got Pierre ready to come in. And it just looked like, I know they took a, a, a cluster of wickets towards the end, but generally throughout that innings, Jamaica just looked in, in control. And at the end, it was up to Odeon Smith and Javorvo to hit the winning runs. Rothman Powell lifting the tournament, as we've discussed, has obviously given the optics of him being the future West Indies captain. Nicholas Poran resigning in the wake of Super 50 just two days later. But Mash, if we want to wrap it up, just sort of, how did, how did it make you feel? How do you feel as a, as a proud Jamaican to see the Jamaica Scorpions lift the title? I guess, in regardless as to whether it has long-term effects or whether it will benefit the West Indies cricket team, in isolation, just sort of, how do you feel about this moment of them winning the Super 50 after such a long time, 10 years? 
Yeah, ultimately, and that that you've, you've just hit the nail on the head. the The main feeling is one of, I mean, there's national pride in it. There's also, though, I have to say that there's also an acceptance that it doesn't hold quite the swaying kind of public consciousness that it once would have done, probably because of how weak West Indies are, not necessarily because of how weak Jamaica are, right? But there is certainly a sense of national pride over winning it. And also, I think, because of winning both competitions, more so than just one, right? Um, As a tournament as a whole, stepping away from it, I I mean, I still think Santoki can give the tournament no more than a five and a half out of ten in terms of overall quality. But at the end of the day, our domestic game is our domestic game. And I guess I end with this. No matter what the quality is and no matter how subpar some things are, you still have to win it. You, you still have to win it. And if we can say on one hand, when TNT won it last year and when TNT won that CPL season beat, uh, without losing the match, if we can say when teams like that do it, we go, oh, they're so good. Well, actually, we have to kind of say it when other teams win it as well. We do have to turn around and be like, well, the Scorpions are a really good side because you, you can only win. You can only beat what's in front of you and you can only win the trophies that are on offer. And at the end of the day, the Scorpions won it. And um, they have to be saluted for that. Whether they can now set up a legacy in uh, in white ball cricket, that's another question altogether. We're currently in the midst of a Barbados Pride legacy in terms of four-day cricket, right? We're kind of in and around a TNT-type legacy with CPL. What's the legacy now going to be for Super 50? Is this a one-off for the Scorpions? Or will they now become a champion side in the region? Let's see next year. Yeah, and I think that's a very, very pertinent question to sort of end on. But Mash, just like the Avengers, you know, we, we've been individually cussing out each other over Super 50, but we unite again as the West Indies take on Australia. The road to the World Test Championship final begins now, looking to get that whitewash in Australia against all the odds. So we'll be back analysing that series. I'm sure we'll have a lot of content, so keep an eye out for that. But that's a goodbye from me, Mash. Is it goodbye from you? Yeah, goodbye from me, people. And as Santoki says, stay locked. We've got plenty of content coming up um, as we hand out the licks to Australia. So stay, stay locked for the next few episodes. Thanks for listening to West Indies on 99.94, where we speak cricket every day. Please rate, review and subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can download the 99.94 app and follow us on Twitter at 994DM and at Carib Cricket. Never miss out. Join our 24-7 conversation on social media and follow us at 9994DM. Cricket, every day, your way. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. 
My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chicken flag.